This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Spell Side Effects. Black Cube. Making Kansas Interesting. And The Thing in the Cincinnati Subway. Cards and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cards and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But look at that. The dice are coming up. Ones. Even the die four, the little die four is coming up one. And that means the little wizard figure's been knocked over backwards into the bowl of Doritos. Why, <laughs> Robin, it's as though casting spells, working with the very fiber of existence, could have a side effect? What? That's not the game I signed up for. Or is it? Uh, right. So I, I thought we would uh, uh, think uh, mostly in an, in an F20 sort of vein. But of course, this is something that you could idea that you could import into uh, modern weirdness or any sort of horror game where you're allowed to actually work magic. And I think it actually even more applies in modern weirdness and horror that you would have uh, weird and deleterious side effects from your spells. But I'm thinking not just of fumbles, uh, because... Uh, I guess, uh, the being knocked backward in, into the, uh, uh, Dorito dip or what you would actually happen to you as a wizard in a dungeon of being, you know, knocked backwards and damaged or, you know, all of those things. I, it would be an example of success at a price. Right. And, and that leads us into a completely different design idea. Uh, perhaps we'll put in a pin for another episode is what if there was, you know, a, a game system where you're, spells always succeed and what you're rolling for is not to determine whether you succeed or fail but whether there's a a bad other effect of that and so that sort of typical fumble territory well i successfully summoned a demon let's see if there was a bad effect yes (laughs) (laughs) let's see if the uh if the part where the demon likes me is is part of the spell this time but i think it's also interesting to or what i would like to focus on is ideas to make uh not spell casting uh, suck more, but to have sort of an evocative quality to it. So that the idea here is not that you are a chump for having cast a spell and, uh, you know, and then something weird happens to you. Like, uh, the, the obvious ideas that all come to mind are all bad, right? It's like, right. oh, well, yeah. your nose starts to fall off or you turn blue or bees come out of your mouth. Yeah. And so 
I guess that's appropriate in sort of a spoofy F20 sort of game. Where or, or a game in which you are, in fact, playing a character class that is trading off more powerful magic for less controllable uh, or darker magic. So you could imagine a game where the wizards are casting good old proof of concept, yonder writers, laboratory tested spells, and the sorcerers or the warlocks are dredging up uh, a fell power from the, from the afterworld. And, uh, maybe it's going to go badly or maybe it's going to go well, or maybe it's going to go both. And that, uh, there might be awful things that happen, but your fireball has nine more dice to it. So who cares? Right. That, that's a really interesting mechanic too, that you, a game in which you can choose whether or not to accept the risk of blowback in order to have a more effective spell, which is actually in uh, Feng Shui, for example, is is a fun idea. And in that case, I think still, though, you would want to frame those effects not so that they are comically humiliating, uh, but that they are dark and bad. And so it's like it's not that you, uh, you know, you turn blue or, you know, bees fly out of your mouth, but you know, uh, blood starts to run out of your eyes and you take a certain amount of damage or whatever it is. I want to so just put a pin in the fact that bees flying out of your mouth is still pretty bad. It is bad, but I, I guess it depends on what the bees then go on to do. There's, right. there's I mean, sort of if a, they're Candyman bees, then I think that's pretty scary. You're right. But the, the instruction then is to make sure that it's, it seems scary and not absurd. Right. Yeah. And it's not a surrealist magic system. It is a uh, magic system with... Uh, very real consequences for toying with the order of things. So uh, what you could then envision is a a magic system where included in the spell descriptions are other things that can possibly happen to you or not, depending on, uh, and it might be uh, depending on how well you roll, or it might be uh, once your pool of magic points has depleted to a certain threshold, or uh, whether you are casting on a uh, a day that is uh, tuned to your particular god or a, a day that is antithetical to your god. There's all sorts of things that could activate or deactivate them. Because uh, one thing I would think you would want in a system of spell uh, side effects is not every darn spell has a side effect because that's wearying to everyone. Yeah, I think the, the, one of the fun things to have it is that as the spells get higher in level, the, the side effects start to accrue because they are more dangerous to cast. There is more magic just being brought into the world, even if it's through a safe channel, like a learned wizard spell. Um, but the magic is once it gets there, it can do all kinds of weird stuff. And some of the magic might even be that it activates other magic in the area that some of the, the spare power just flows out. And so if someone's got a, a magic sword, it starts to, you know, it, it sets on fire or it, or it starts to glow or, or utter a prophecy or something. So it can have a knock on effect on other magic items. Now, again, that you talk about getting weary. That would be super weary to have everyone's magic items always going off. But if say dimension door, uh, works. Maybe that's one of the things that happens. Oh, I'm carrying my magic item through a dimension door. I'm sure nothing bad can happen from that. Um, I, I think that that some spells maybe provide the notion that they are purer magic, if I want to use that word, uh, or more, more primal magic than just good old sleep or featherfall. Uh, one possible side effect could be, uh, as you suggested, if the, uh, the ambient magic in an area increases, that you attract the attention of other beings who can detect or feed upon magic. And uh, again, the most obvious thing you can think of is something bad happening is, you know, you cast this additional spell and then, oh, the, the magic eaters come for you, uh, which uh, can be uh, uh, fun or entertaining or fill 
uh, 20 to 30 minutes that the GM needs <laughs> to, to fill before the session ends. So those things, those things are all, uh, all valid and cool, but also obvious. Um, but uh, another thing it could do is, well, just the beings in the spirit realm come and materialize and all of a sudden the, the fire spirit, uh, in the area, you've been casting fireballs. It comes over and, and wants to know what's going on. And it, in this case, it might or might not be hostile depending on how you interact with it. So, uh, it could come over and, and ask you, why you are summoning uh, fire into the region and depending on your response it could be uh saying hey awesome that's great uh by the way did you know uh over on the other side of the uh rocks there uh, there's a river elemental and uh i will uh recharge your magic if you go and kick that water elemental's uh, uh watery behind or, or you know it can give you information so I, well uh the last guy through this area he wasn't nearly so nice and i uh had to scorch him a little and he went off to the left. And of course that's the guy that you're, uh, you've been pursuing the whole time. So, uh, you could gain, uh, just sort of a, a fun interaction with a, a magical entity. Uh, you could, uh, have a challenging interaction, which can go one way or another, depending on how you use your, um, interpersonal skills and how you, uh, uh, play the scene. Or it can just be sort of a, a little bit of flavor that suggests a, deeper, richer world, but doesn't necessarily tie into the broader plot, but it, it makes the fact that you are casting magic seem magical and cool and part of a broader magical ecosystem. Another thing that you can just have, is, I mean, and I think that this is handy, especially for the Of Cthulhu world, is to have just a handy set of things that seem creepy and maybe have meaning, but maybe don't, but let you know that something out of the ordinary happened. And that can be just as you cast the spell, the dimensionality of the room subtly shifts or you seem to rotate out of time sequence with your buddies. You're moving one round ahead of them or one round behind them. It can be a, you know, the old uh, smell of brimstone fills the air, the smell of uh, dead and rotting meat. Uh, it can be uh, weird noises. It can, the weird noises can just apply to the caster. Or they can echo from everywhere. Um, and again, this is not, uh, intended to be surreal or silly. It's intended to indicate that you're by messing with powers beyond your control, you are inviting, uh, other sorts of phenomena in and you can just keep going, uh, down to, you know, if a given piece of magic, uh, is powerful enough or is cast at the wrong place, you know, you activate your holy guardian angel in the Crowleyan sense and some demonic form appears and, uh, at the very least questions your right, rightfulness to cast that spell. And at, uh, best, I guess, um, because it's your, uh, entity, it also provides, um, a doom laden warning of what is, uh, lies ahead of you, uh, that kind of thing. So the notion that you need to have something to separate magic from the real world is even truer, I think, in what you were you're talking about modern weirdness games than it is in F20, where in, to a large extent, magic is woven into the ecosystem. And so casting magic is no more or less unusual than a bright sunny day. And a, just as a bright sunny day might reveal something or put something to sleep uh, in the natural world, uh, casting a, a, a bright magical spell might reveal something or put something to sleep or wake something up in the magical world, but that they're all part of uh, a magical ecology to borrow a Gygaxian phrase. The, yeah, the, the more uh, unusual spell casting is in the setting, the more I think you could argue for wanting to make it seem so by drawing on sensory imagery. So uh, you could literally have heightened senses after uh, casting a spell. So it's like, Oh, well uh, now 
that you've uh, detected the direction of your enemy also for the next half hour, you can sort of see part way into the ultraviolet spectrum and the uh, the floaters in your eyes. Now you can tell what they really are and they have faces. So uh, try not to focus on them <laughs> the way that you normally yeah. don't focus on the floaters. And so uh, this can be uh, creepy in a horror game or wondrous in a urban fantasy game where it turns out that there's a, a magical utopia uh, hiding just beneath the surface. So uh, in that sense, you know, maybe... Uh, you know, if you cast a positive spell or a healing spell, something that helps somebody in a uh, a, a more emotionally uh, positive uh, magical world, maybe your food just tastes really great for the next uh, half hour. That, uh, um, you know, especially if you're halflings to go back to F20, uh, as soon as you cast that detect magic spell, it's time to break out the snacks because you know that your uh, elven uh, sort of crunchy Swedish bread that usually tastes sort of like uh, cardboard, uh, it's going to taste really great for the next half hour because you just cast Detect Magic. So it's time for a break, everybody. <laughs> you could also, uh, you know, use the uh, uh, spell casting as, as drug analogy uh, so that uh, you are, uh, the thing that you're sensing is actually somewhat of a distortion of the world, that you've changed the the rules of reality a bit. And therefore, well, now uh, afterwards you get a little... Uh, hallucinatory journey and uh, as a caster of magic hallucinations are a mixed bag because yeah. it might uh, give you greater uh, insight into the universe but you don't know the difference be whether that sort of coruscating uh, shape coming your way is just the uh, your synapses uh, coming down from having cast magic and it's just all uh, literally uh, in your uh, head and your perceptual apparatus or of course, it could actually be a coruscating thing. So that's when you have to tell your non-magic casting uh, buddies, uh, do you also see the coruscating thing or is that just me? No, we just see a friendly halfling. Why? <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's really enjoying that terrible toast. It yeah. is. Does he have, you know, does he have an aura? What's going on? Maybe he's just cast yeah. magic. And that's the other thing that, you know, you maybe need to give a little think to is if you have multiple spellcasters in your party. It, just like you have multiple uh, powerful electrical cables running through a thing, you're, that's a that's a bigger chance you need more insulation. So if every caster casts a spell in a round, which is very common in F20 games, does that create a heterodyning effect? Is there a, more, a bigger thing that can happen if four people have uh, uh, side effects happening at the same time versus just the one wizard or just the one warlock? And is it a situation where the four things – just sort of um, uh, damp themselves out. And maybe one of the spell effects is that they create overlapping charge fields. So no one's spell is quite as powerful or effective as they wanted it to be. Or if you didn't want to nerf magic in that way, maybe the effect of casting those spells is like you say, you sent up a, a big magical signal. So even if the lich didn't know you were coming before, you've lost the element of surprise now um, because his little lichy spy eyes are, are alert to such magical flares as the one you've just set off. This also suggests a sort of world explanation of a, a any setting where there's fire and forget magic that you forget all of your spells and have to go learn them again. But after you cast X number of spells, you're just, but your head is buzzing. Your uh, cortisol in your system is jacked. Your heart is pumping. Um, you're seeing coruscating uh, entities. You really want to have the delicious uh, Hobbit toast. And, you know, you've got to come down 
uh, from a fight, uh, which is, you know, just in real life fights, people have to come down from the adrenaline of it and, and get over it. But it might be that uh, as a spellcaster, you've got that, uh, multiplied because, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to focus or do anything, but, uh, I just need to sit down for a bit because I've got all of this uh, mana coursing through my system and my joints are inflamed and, uh, I'm, my tear ducts are acting up and, the world is looking a little wobbly, so uh, we're just going to have to sit down, hopefully in a safe place where we're not going to get attacked, where you guys with the swords can, you know, ring yourselves around uh, spell captors while we uh, while we recover from all of these uh, side effects uh, going into each other. And I guess that's where you can get back to the idea of side effects uh, stolen from pharmaceutical advertisements, that you could come up with a master table of, uh, you know, dizziness and difficulty focusing and you know do not operate heavy pegasi after uh, casting the spell uh well on that note here comes our pegasi pegasus we just need, we just one. need the one because we're friends and templars yes to fly us over this commercial to the uh, to whatever segment happens to lie behind it In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrain Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The background check and the retinal scans that you had to undergo to listen to this portion of the podcast tell us that we are once more in that most top secret of huts, the Trade Craft Hut. This time, Ken, I thought we would talk about uh, something that has uh, been in the news a lot, and we've talked about a bit in passing, but never tackled directly, and that's the issue of uh, spies for hire, privatized spy groups. Uh, the most uh, famous of those right now is Black Cube. Uh, there's another one called Psy Group, which has been uh, in the news a lot in relation to the uh, uh, Russian collusion scandal. Uh, and uh, so I thought we would talk specifically about these two groups and also about the general phenomenon and then, of course, how to use them in your uh, espionage and spy-adjacent uh, campaign. So uh, Black Cube. Uh, and first of all, we have to observe that there's there's some branding 
uh, going on here for sure. Right. I mean, they've, they've all got their, they've all got their brands and, and there seems to be within the world of private intelligence agencies, uh, which is a big world because, uh, business, the CIA, we have to, you always have to keep in mind the CIA, most of what it does when it does anything, <laughs> elbow each other is, uh, provide, uh, analysis of things that are basically open source. They go and they read every newspaper in Pakistan and they say, well, it looks like Pakistan's mad at India. Thanks a lot. Or they may have something immediately useful unless Deanna Troy is to say. And so that analysis can be done in theory by anyone with a, um, uh, master's degree in international relations and access to the Pakistani news media. So there are a lot of what are called strategic intelligence companies. And of course, the big example, I think that most people know in America is a company called Stratfor, which mostly provides CIA-level white papers to businesses who subscribe to the Stratfor intelligence newsletter. They buy a given Stratfor report because they're going to go invest money in Pakistan. They're going to buy a bunch of um, uh, dockyard equipment in Gwalior, and they want to know whether or not the Pakistani government is going to shut it down or mobs are going to burn it down or whatever, and they would like to be advised on that basis. And so a lot of these companies begin as consulting companies. And so Booz Allen Hamilton, for example, is what basically began as management consultants and sort of drifted its way in to doing a lot of the NSA's work for it. Because uh, if we all remember, Edward Snowden did not work directly for the NSA. He worked for Booz Allen. And the shocker was Booz Allen has access to all the NSA prime cracking tools? Whose idea was that? No one ever asked that question, weirdly enough, because they were too busy asking, how did Edward Snowden, you know, uh, defect uh, with all that stuff? Right. And and the people who made that mistake certainly didn't want to come forward and no, let their hands go. they did not. Um, but, but, the, but the notion is that you get a company that uh, does management consulting, and so the NSA brings them in and says, our management is a typical government agency. Perhaps it could be a little better than that fix it, and Booz Allen goes in and starts reworking their computer systems, and once you've got the company that knows your computer system, why not hire them to run uh, standard searches, in this case using Prism and other Bad News Bears activities, because now they know your computer, possibly better than you. And so a lot of these companies begin as these sort of uh, management consultants and then drift themselves into doing spying for hire uh, in this, in, in Booz Allen's sense, it's electronic spying, but plenty of them are also the go and beat someone up and find out their information type spying. Of course, the other lap over on the other side is private detective agencies. So uh, the good old Pinkertons smashing uh, union heads since the 1870s are still around and in business and do private detective work. And if you want to get the dirt on a union organizer, you hire the Pinkertons and they go and they find out stuff about him. And that's not necessarily spying, but if the FBI were doing it, we'd say it was intelligence work. So the question really is who's cutting the check at the back end is the thing that makes it spying versus not spying because black cube, although it has, as you say, a really great branding uh, and is built of ex Mossad operatives, mostly does Pinkerton stuff. It goes around. It just does it super enthusiastically. Like when it breaks into the email of the Romanian special prosecutor to investigate corruption to find out if they are corrupt. Uh, that seems more than what the Pinkertons would get up to. It's certainly more than what Stratfor would get up to. Yeah, and I think I guess the term we're looking for here is black bag operation, which covers the Venn Black diagram. bag operations, right. And so does the company do black bag? And even if it does, it's not going to be on its, um, uh, 
on its letterhead and it may never be anywhere except for when you talk to the head of the company and you say, seriously, I need this guy taken down. And the guy says, not a problem. We have people. And even they might, you know, hire a, a cutout rather than use their own, uh, a black cube branded dudes, although black right. cube uses their own black cube branded dudes, they might hire cutouts themselves. So, um, the fusion GPS that got hired by, um, uh, the Hillary campaign to find out dirt on Trump, went and hired a former spy, a guy who was with MI6 to use his contacts in Russia and come up with the infamous Steele dossier. So at, at what point is that a private spying operation versus a super enthusiastic research group? And I guess right. the question is, whatever makes it most fun for you? Yes. And certainly there's been the implication as well that an organization like Black Cube, or if not Black Cube itself, has been involved in intimidating uh, not only uh, family members of former Obama officials who uh, criticized the uh, Trump administration, but also the accusers in the Harvey Weinstein case. And so yes. uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, especially, uh, you know, the, it's it's clear that in that scenario, they are the bad guys. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the question is not so much who's who's doing bad things. I expect all of them. But the question is. Are the bad things they're doing colorably spy work versus the sort of things that in a, in a movie you hire a heavy private detective to go do? Right. And in this case, it's both because they're former Mossad guys. Yeah. So if you're, if you're good at doing a dead drop in Budapest, you're also uh, good at, uh, uh, planting drugs in the, in the luggage of someone you want, your client wants to discredit. Um, And there's definitely in both this and Psy Group, there, the branding heavily suggests that they're willing to do black bag stuff. So, for example, uh, Psy Group, which is another group made up of ex-Massad people, their former, their current site is just like their logo and an address in Cyprus, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. An archived version of that uh, included, uh, you know, they say, well, we do SEO and social media and uh, mind control. Oh, no, 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 sorry. That's just between the lines. And their motto is shape reality. Uh, That's so, a good motto. Yeah. So it might as well, you know, their motto might as well be pawns of the pallid mask, uh, really, for, for this purpose. I'm worried that Mossad is not um, uh, keeping their pensions up. If if all the former Mossad guys have to go start creepy private investigator groups. Uh, yes. I, I just think maybe fund the retirement of your guys, Mossad. Come on. And this is not a criticism of Mossad, of course. <laughs> we all love Mossad here. But uh, seriously. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, I don't know how much. They're being driven by the fear of penury versus just good old fashioned. Uh, I've got all these skills. I might as well go over to the dark side now. Um, right. And it's the side group who uh, met with Rick Gates and Donald Trump Jr. And it's not clear at this point, but might be by the time that you hear this episode, uh, <laughs> what actually went down with them, whether they actually hired side group to do anything or just side group was the kind of uh, entity that they were talking with and that in and of itself is extremely telling uh but at any rate um that's uh that's extremely topical so how do we uh bring these uh into a uh, a scenario so uh, the most obvious way is just that y- that the, the player characters work for one your player characters work for one uh in which case uh you i think probably want to have the outwardly more sympathetic version of what it is that they're doing uh, since these guys brand themselves as as uh, kind of sinister, I think they're 
uh, even more effective as uh, sort of antagonist figures who uh, they may not know what's actually going on behind the conspiracy. So in Knights Black Agents, they might not know anything at all about vampires, but they do know that they've been hired to uh, uh, plant uh, you know, some sort of uh, anti-garlic radiation uh, device in your luggage, and they just think it's a, you know, a regular old uh, USB port or uh, a a packet of cocaine or or whatever. But the, the the vampires know what it is because they they've arranged it. So this could be sort of you know a a low level piece in a conspiracy in in Knights Black Agents. How else would you use them? I mean, another thing that you can use is the they're not necessarily the NPCs in the sense that they're your opponents, but let's take the the head of one of these companies uh commit suicide and you're like, "Oh, I wonder why that is." And uh it turns out that as you've been investigating the uh, uh copy of the King in Yellow that has gone missing, um you find that he acquired it for a for a sinister client and then committed suicide. And so it's did the King in Yellow play make him commit suicide? Was he murdered by this agent of Carcosa that's attempting to acquire the copy of the play? And simultaneously, you're trying to investigate it, but all the guys who used to work for him at um, uh, Hackluton Company or whatever are now coming after you and saying, these guys are mysterious weirdos who've been talking about the play. Let's get them. And so they pr- provide the role of the cops in a proper private detective movie. They're generally on the side of good, but they don't really care who they nail as long as they nail somebody. And so uh you have to sort of either talk them around or stay out of their way long enough to find the real Carcosa mastermind behind the missing book. They also give you the opportunity for that classic narrative trope, the ambiguous former friends. So uh, if you're playing uh, Delta Green, they're all ex-Delta Green agents and they've uh, formed you know, the, a new group called the Yugoth Corporation. And, uh, <laughs> uh that sounds kind of bad, but, uh, maybe that's just branding and you run across them in the field and, uh, the player characters then establish their backstory connections to the other group of agents. Oh, he saved my life in Saigon that time. And, you know, oh, well, yeah, we drank each other, uh, under the table in, uh, in Belarus. Uh, okay. Well, I hope they're also the good guys. And then, you know, there's all sorts of things that you could then go on to do with them and from uh, making them the actual antagonists who've gone wrong. It turns out, weirdly enough, they are working for the Migo and they just thought they would call themselves Yogoth Corporation because that would throw you off. It was too obvious. Right. Or, you know, they are, uh, they are on the side of good. And, and of course, that means that when you show up at the installation at the end, you find them all uh, desiccated and hanging from the webbing uh, from right. the ceiling. And, uh, and they named themselves Yugoth Corporation because anyone who wants to hire the Yugoth Corporation probably needs to be extrajudicially killed. Exactly. Another possible origin for those guys is Ex Majestic. In the Delta Green continuity, Majestic 12 blew up along with all the other uh, private contractors during the War on Terror and a lot of pieces of Majestic after it got remerged with Delta Green um, wound up as private contractors and why not some part of Majestic 3 operating as a as a private intelligence company and again you have the are they good or are they mythos and many of those guys might have been your buddies in the early 2000s but now in 2019 they're not and you can ask those questions about them the other possibility that we have not yet looked on is that the private intelligence company is working not for the vampires or for Cthulhu or for the King in Yellow, but 
is working on its own agenda and that they are co-player characters in a way, but the head of the group maybe wants to do the other kind of thing. So if you're the kind of guy who wants to burn all the copies of the King in Yellow and the head of this other company is the guy who wants to do linguistic analysis on the King in Yellow so we can create a play that says, recycle your cans and makes everyone do that, then that is still a threat. It's still a danger, but it's not as dangerous as the actual Carcosans that are out there uh, messing around with you. So you can have a, a rival who might be good and might be bad in the same way as your old buddies. But in this case, they're your, they're your sort of crosstown rival. And because they're a big fancy PIC, they've got all the money and toys that you don't have. So they become the sort of uh, rich fat kids across the lake as well. Exactly. They're the, they're uh, all uh, super slick and well-dressed and they have professional protocols and codes of ethics and uh, great equipment. And uh, when they uh, rescue you from the uh, uh, den of the ghouls, boy, are they ever supercilious about it. And uh, Just sort of all in a day's work, no problem. Don't need to thank us. Yeah. And uh, perhaps the there's one efficient member of the player character group who says, well, we'd be willing to hire you. All of the rest of you losers, no way, no chance. And so you can yeah. have that uh, sort of uh, premise. Good luck living on your Mossad pensions. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, I think it's time that we uh, uh, snuck out of the top secret hut and uh, and see uh, what uh, uh, lurks on the other side. And, and perhaps uh, we can get some fat bank uh, doing it if we uh, just look sinister enough, Ken. Ooh, sinister enough. when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it. Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect this podcast from witch-filled tornadoes by joining such Patreon supporters as... Diane Donaldson. Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. John Buckley. And Lee Carnell. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Drew Eicholtz asks Ken and Robin... 
Can you make Kansas interesting? <laughs> nice slam on Kansas, Drew. <laughs> uh, from a modern weirdness perspective. Okay, I get it. Without relying on stock monsters. Uh, Robin, you have done an impression of me, it looks like, and right. dug into the pages of the greatest of us all, the greatest Olympianist, the father of the field, Mr. Charles Fort. And yes, so you I are just... question, I, I thought, we don't do this often. I'm not even sure literally... Uh, I've ever gone to the uh, collected works of Charles Ford and and just looked up something. And the, so the, the answer to the question, the general question of how to do this for anything, not just Kansas, is look in the index of the collected works of Charles Ford. Right. Uh, in this case, I looked up all the references to Kansas, and uh, then we are going to uh, uh, build on that. And uh, you would think it would be something that we do nearly every single episode, but I don't think I've, I've actually done that before. So. Uh, and and what this gives you is something that is seems sort of specific to that area. It's something, uh, of course, Fort wrote in the early part of the last century, mostly about things that happened in the latter part of the previous century. So they're sort of old-timey things that we will then need to update to make them weird and, and modern uh, now. And some of them, I think, are more promising than others. So, uh, for example... Uh, there was an ice fall, classic Fordian thing of uh, unexplained things coming from the sky. And, of course, when this happens in 1982 or in 2020, having ice fall from the sky now, you just go, oh, airplane. Uh, but in 1882, uh, when uh, near Salina, Kansas, a piece of ice came rocketing from the sky and landed on good old Salina, Kansas, uh, that was unusual and didn't have an obvious uh, solution. And now... When ice falls from the sky, we may think it's an airplane, but it could be weird ice. And in this case, a Mr. W.J. Hagler from North Santa Fe became possessor of the uh, mass of ice. It was about 80 pounds of ice, and he packed it in sawdust in his store. So, BFD, you say to yourselves, listeners, but what if that ice still exists? It hasn't ever melted. It's uh, And there's something... Uh, you know, going on in, in North Santa Fe about that ice from, uh, the fact that it, uh, alters people's behavior, uh, to the fact that it, uh, shelters North Santa Fe from the, the worst of, uh, coming weather conditions to, uh, having some sort of control on, uh, the local elementals. And so you find some way to kind of modernize, you know, what would it mean today? If there's a little town where there's an 80 pound block of ice that never melts and, uh, the, the locals just, they just don't want to talk about it, Ken. Yeah. They're, uh, they're not talking about their ice. Um, I think you can begin by saying, uh, I, and this is maybe to lean into the Kansasness of it a little bit and maybe the other areas won't, but we, what the thing we think about Kansas, and I think the thing that we think pretty fairly about Kansas, especially if we were driven through it is that Kansas is kind of the same. It's uh, you leave aside Kansas city, which is a lovely town and in Missouri and Kansas itself is pretty much unchanging. It's the backdrop. It's the great middle part of the country and there's wheat and corn and now we're done. And so maybe the ice, because ice of course freezes things is acting to keep uh North Santa Fe, Kansas frozen, if you will. And so the sort of, placid, go-along, middle-class, Bob Dole, Republican Kansasness of it is just still happening because this ice uh, is acting to magically or in some sort of Cthulhu mythosy brain spore way. It just sort of 
keeps everyone frozen about where they were in 1882 in terms of uh, society. It's not that the internet doesn't work. It's just that no one really bothers to go on it because you can go down to the general store and listen to old Clem tell you stories about how it used to be back in the old days. And so uh, North Santa Fe is is kind of, you know, it, it's a beautiful little idyll. There's no meth epidemic. There's no opioids. There's none of that stuff. It's just sort of happening. Now, of course, it's 1882, so the people's attitudes are not maybe what you would like to see in modern-day America. But, you know, gosh darn it, they're friendly, and they make a darn good rhubarb pie. So the, this sort of creepy, pleasant villi sort of situation maybe is solved by melting the, the magic sky ice, or maybe if you break open the sky ice, the stuff that is only affected Upper North Santa Fe blows out and starts affecting whole great stretches of the Midwest, and I guess that's up to the player characters to find out. And if you decide that the uh, the unmelting ice is a force for good, then the object of the scenario is then to protect it uh, from the uh, evil scientists from uh, from Stranger Things or uh, just the uh, the dis- the disruptors who want to turn everything upside down. Uh, they want to uh, melt that ice and unleash. 70, 80, uh, 90 years of, uh, built up, uh, social stasis. And, you know, if you, if you melt that ice, suddenly North Santa Fe turns into the purge. And so right, you're trying yeah. to protect it from, uh, whoever it is is trying to take the ice or, or, uh, melt it away. Or maybe someone wants to take that ice and move it to somewhere that, like Detroit. And they're like, if we can maybe take Detroit and keep it in 1882, it won't all disintegrate and fall apart. Right. And then it all goes horribly wrong because all your ice does is it freezes you in whatever era you're in. And so it right, yeah. sticks Detroit in the middle of uh, its 21st century current travails. If you're thinking uh, Kansas, uh, what is what is Kansas mostly? Well, it's mostly sky. You look up and, you know, there's a big flat land. And so uh, the menaces are going to come from up above, including, of course, airships. So there was a case in the, again, in the late 19th century where there was a, a, a number of uh, sort of kite-like kind of paper lantern things. These were not uh, sort of classic pre-saucer UFO sightings, but actually somebody was building weird unmanned airships that would uh, float around, if we believe all the stories, of course. And so it was, uh, this airship was identified as an airship invented by someone in Dodge City, Kansas. Or perhaps Brule, Wisconsin, but we haven't been asked about Wisconsin. We've been asked about no. Kansas. Can I bet the juxtaposition of airships and Dodge City uh, get your brain a spinning? Oh yeah. All right. Eighteen ninety-seven in Dodge City is too late, sadly, to involve Wyatt Earp in our airship. Wyatt Earp and uh, Bat Masterson are in Dodge City in the eighteen seventies, not the eighteen nineties. But I do want to mention. That according to a guy named Carl Delschow, who was a, what do I want to say, outsider artist, crazy person, there was something called the Sonora Aero Club in Sonora, California, in the mid-19th century, a secret group called NIMSA that uh, built advanced airships in the 1870s. And so if NIMSA is using Wyatt Earp as a cutout, and possibly as a guy who goes roving around, perhaps as a private intelligence company, he says, calling back, taking care of 
of air, other airship inventors, maybe the guys that uh, either Nimza planted or that Wyatt Earp fought in Dodge City survived to build an airship that flew in 1897. Because, again, building an airship is not necessarily a one-year-off operation. The guy could easily have been plotting his airship as early as um, uh, the 1878, 1879 uh, Earp era. So I think that Cowboys and Airships is a terrific idea for something. Right. And we want to modernize this. It's supposed to be modernness. So that, of course, means that the Cowboy Airship Organization has continued to this very day. So there's uh, descendants of uh, the Earps and Mastersons and Holidays who are uh, flying around in airships. And at this point, you may say, I don't think there's any airships. And so, of course, the airships are now invisible. And why would you have invisible uh, uh, airships? Well, obviously, there's some sort of threat that this organization is uh, is trying to fight. And uh, one day, uh, the player characters are minding their own business when an invisible uh, airship, uh, which was coming over to, to find them and talk to them and recruit them, crashes into their headquarters. And now you've got to interview the uh, now uh, injured survivors who have to, you know, the uh, Wyatt Earp Jr., 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 uh, is then uh, has to be taken to the hospital, so uh, he can't uh, uh, s- solve the case for you, and then you go off and, and you know, you have to take over for them and find out uh, what else is up in the sky that is the threat that the invisible airships uh, have been fighting. And this, of course, brings us to the fact that the skies of Kansas are crawling with Quetzalcoatls. Uh, Cue the winged serpent is, uh, is uh, was cited in uh, 1873, and... Uh, there was a uh, a, a flying a snake was reported flying over Fort Scott, Kansas, in the form of a huge serpent. Uh, now, uh, there's a suggestion uh, that perhaps this was also a, an aircraft, a metal craft in the in the shape of a uh, uh, a serpent. But uh, I think it's more fun to think of him as as a Quetzalcoatl. And if you're a Quetzalcoatl, you're a, you're darn near immortal, and uh, you may still be uh, snacking on Kansans. Uh, even as we speak, Ken. Even to this day. Another thing that we have to keep in mind is if there is a uh, enormous serpent flying around, that uh, it may have come out of the gate to hell in Stull, Kansas. I don't know how close Stull is to Fort Scott, and I don't care to know. But if uh, you've got a People gate to hell, to driving long distances out there, so it's 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 a short drive. Right. To yeah. Them. In Kansas, it doesn't seem that far. And, and so the, uh, the the notion that there is a uh enormous dragon uh being released i think that is a sign of uh, not necessarily just an anomalous pteranodon a la q but i think it's a it's an end time signal and i think the apocalypse very nearly happened in 1873 in and around fort scott kansas and perhaps uh teens messing around the gate in stull are going to unleash another giant serpent or they do unleash another giant serpent even to this day i i think Maybe Wyatt Earp is not the guy to fly around and shoot the devil in the head, although maybe he is. But I think that if you have well, a... Well, um, if the airship hadn't crashed into your headquarters. Exactly, and then leave it to you. I, I think the notion that uh, people come and they expect a cryptid, and you take a, a left turn, and no, it's the it's the beast of the abomination of desolation. It's right there in the book. And uh, the, this dragon is, um, uh, it, if you keep it alone, it's going to grow heads and horns and, and start um, uh, promulgating antichrists and whatnot. And that's... That's something you can't have in Kansas, frankly. That's really more of an Arkansas thing. Right. And I'm not sure if a poltergeist or, or haunting counts as a, a stock monster, but uh, in, uh, in August 12th in 1927, 
Uh, Fred Kett and his wife were compelled to move from their home near Ellenwood, Kansas, uh, after uh, months of haunting activity, uh, with uh, pictures being turned to the wall, other objects moving about, and their pet dog stabbed with a pitchfork by an invisible. So uh, that is uh, clearly a sign of uh, discarnate demons uh, who have uh, leaked out of the hellmouth and are uh, uh, going off and uh, and wreaking a side havoc as uh, as junior demons are are wont to do. So uh, as soon as we know that there's uh, airships and the uh, the unmelting ice, which I think now is clearly that we think about it more as a counterpoint to the Hellmouth, right? It's keeping mm-hmm. the Hellmouth closed, uh, and that's, uh, I think you want to make sure that your uh, discarnate demons don't start whipping up poltergeist activities uh, in North Santa Fe, because that's clearly... And I, and I, I think the notion that, that you've got an invisible entity that's stabbing dogs, I think that probably is maybe connected to the invisibility of the airship, that the air, airship operates on the same invisibility principle that these discarnate uh, beings uh, do, and that that's why they have to be invisible. It's not just to escape detection, but it's in order to see into the plane where there's dragons and monsters, you know, pouring all over Kansas, and uh, they have to fight them with their uh, Sky Gatling guns. Uh, so I think we've found a, a good balance of the kind of... Uh uh, old timey and wholesome and uh, and corn fed uh, paranormal uh, in the pages of uh, Charles Fort, and we've given it a bit of an update. Uh, and uh, now in the modern day of uh, uh, plant closings and uh, the opioid epidemic, those uh, dog stabbing demons have uh, all the more purchase into the people. And it's up to you, folks. After the invisible airship of uh, Wyatt Earp the Seventh uh, crashes into your headquarters, to uh, take care of it. So we'll just leave that to you, listeners. And uh, we'll uh, head on over to this uh, this next uh, commercial, which I think leads us underground. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once more to enter that most mysterious and ill-defined of huts. We can barely even see the outline of its walls, but we can look outside the window and see the alien big cat screaming out on the moor, and then look over in the corner and there, sipping their kombucha and... uh, making snide remarks about other alien species, we see the gray alien and the Nordic alien. So we must be in the Elliptony hut, that hut that uh, encompasses all weirdness that is otherwise undefined and hard to pin down. And this time, uh, Patreon backer Dice Geeks 
if that is your real name, uh, asks, <laughs> what's living in the Cincinnati subway and how do we kill it? Uh, so those of us who do not live in Cincinnati uh, might think, oh, there's a Cincinnati subway. But when you look it up uh, using the handy link uh, supplied by our by Dice Geeks, you find out, no, it doesn't. It has two miles of abandoned tunnels. Uh, and this was an attempt at early rapid transit before the car quite caught on and uh, and vagaries uh, prevented it from being fully built, didn't they, Ken? Yeah, hate a vagary. Yeah, yes. Uh, so uh, the project was first... Uh, like, some of it was... Gosh, what, what could be better than Cincinnati? How about underground Cincinnati? Underground Cincinnati. So basically the system, it's two miles of abandoned tunnels. Uh, they built a bunch of it beginning just as World War I was starting. They had to stop work on it because during World War I, bond issuance for non-war bond purposes, I guess, was suspended. Uh, and then once the war ended, it took them a little while to recover and get going, and a bit more was built in like 26, 27. But then there was, it's hard for me to imagine this, Ken, and you're going to have to explain in more detail, but was there, there was political wrangling in an American city that led to uh, things not happening? That seems odd. I mean, maybe Cincinnati is a, a single case, the, unlike all other American cities in the Midwest and West and South. But, uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the, obviously, as with anything that is built and costs a zillion times more than it's supposed to and is not done yet, it becomes a political football. And when uh, there is a uh, issue over who's going to pay for the rest of this thing that was some guy's idea in 1910, who is no longer around to call in favors, there are constant uh, problems back and forth. And then, of course, the other problem is they had to build some of the subway or decided to build some of the subway through other cities that were near but not part of Cincinnati, and they were holding up the works because they wanted more money. And you can say either they're being jerks and getting in the way of area rapid transit, or you can say, look, it's their city that people are setting off dynamite in all the time. They deserve a couple of nickels. Uh, so the cities of Norwood and St. Bernard uh, were mad at it, and the city of Brighton also uh, not fond. So the whole situation comes to a head. And in January of 1929, the city manager, Murray Seasongood, who had built his entire political identity on hating on the subway, becomes mayor and says, we're not doing the stupid uh, subway. And then the stock market crashed in October. And that was the end of anyone thinking they could issue bonds to pay for this nonsensical subway. Uh, the, um, Car ownership, of course, had blossomed in Cincinnati after uh, the construction began, so they didn't really have a, a reason to keep building uh, a, a subway, given that everyone had uh, individual transit around. And, of course, Cincinnati, if you've ever looked at it, is a big, flat, wide-open city, so there's no real geographical pressure to have mass transit in a city like that. So um, it was one of those things that if they could have built it in the 1880s when they wanted to, it might still be around today, doing its tiny little bit to... Uh, uh, reduce uh, congestion in Cincinnati, but now is basically a big hole in the ground that they have to keep uh, going because they've built streets on top of it. And if they don't keep the tunnels going, the streets will fall in, which right. is Cincinnati to a T. <laughs> now, I'm sure Dice Geeks mostly wanted us to talk about transit infrastructure, but in passing... Sure they did. They called a Torontonian and a Chicagoan. Yeah. That must be what they wanted. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, in passing mentions that there's a thing down there that uh, that we need to know how to kill. So right. uh, as we do in every single episode of this show, of course, then we go to the collected works of Charles Fort and look up 
in the index, uh, the, the thing that we want to find out. And, and guess what? There's three very telling entries about Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and so, uh, these obviously will tell us what's in the, uh, subway. So in 1871, women's faces appeared in the mildew on windows, uh, in Cincinnati and nearby Sandusky as well. So, uh, clearly, uh, what is down there, first tip-off, uh, is a fungal alien entity that is attempting to materialize in our uh, realm. And, and can do I dare indicate that, that if, if it's a fungal entity, it's got to be ultra-terrestrial? I think that you have to indicate that. I think that that's, that's crucial. Yes. Um, I think that we've learned from the Quatermass experiment, among other lesser uh, lesser things, that uh, going outside the, the green Eden made for us by God causes us to turn into fungal entities and perhaps invites fungal entities from above. I would say probably that that fungal entity is a Cincinnatavian who attempted to pierce the barrier between our earth and Cincinnati or rather between Cincinnati and, um, uh, and the outside realm. <laughs> Wait, you've blown and, the uh, lid off Cincinnati not being of our earth. Uh, people, yeah. this is, this is what you get your Patreon uh, backer money into us for is for, Revelations like that. And, uh, I was thinking that it might have been a, a scouting mission, right? That if you're trying to, if you're an, a fungal ultra-terrestrial, uh, you know, those of your listeners don't have to write in and tell us which one of you are fungal ultra-terrestrials. It's a no judgment zone here, but, uh, you want to be able to peer into the realm that you're eventually going to invade. Uh, so it could, uh, as you suggest, uh, be someone sort of triggers it by uh, entering into the fungal realm, and that gets their attention. And then they start popping up on on windows elsewhere because they want to see what they're going to get. And can do fungal ultra-terrestrials work on the same time scale as the rest of us? Uh, Fungal ultra-terrestrials work on a much wider time scale because they're fungususes. And uh, as we know from the giant fungus that lives in Michigan uh, and is, as far as we can tell, immortal, they have to have, they're like the elves, really. They see our, our mayfly lives as, as tiny flickering passages in the larger song of existence, except they're fungal monstrosities. So they're, well, they're still like the elves. I'm going to, I'm going to stay with that. Yeah. In what is a blink of uh, a mycelial eye to them, but is uh, uh, another generation to us. In 1899, uh, there is an epidemic of uh, what they call the kissing bug, which strikes Cincinnati among other places. And this is a swarm of invisible insects uh, that attacks people. And, and uh, uh, there's quite a bit of concern over this as uh, I do not want to be attacked by biting insects, invisible or not. And uh, people began to think that it was a case of public hysteria, that people were just imagining that they were bitten by black flies that nobody could see. But in Cincinnati, uh, they proved everybody wrong by attacking a horse and biting it and causing its jaw to swell up uh, to enormous proportions. And therefore, nobody thinks that a horse is subject to psychosomatic hysteria effects Clearly, this proves that there is something else going on. And since we already know uh, there's a fungal invasion uh, by ultra-terrestrials underway, can, what does this tell us about uh, how they're advancing their plan? Um, I, I think that the bugs that are spreading the, um, uh, the, the epidemic, that is a transmission medium either for the fungus or it is a, a species that uh, that is in symbiosis with the fungus in its native 
uh, plane or dimension and has followed the fungus there, that it uses the fungus to breed, for example, or that the fungus contains a, a spore that it needs for its own uh, fell bugly purposes. And so the bugs are also as we can tell um by the sort of distribution they're a they're a, a broad spectrum of what I want to say distributed uh intelligence or, or at least a hive mind and so they're operating as the this is the next stage after you get the fungus monsters they start you know that's how you get uh, uh kissing bugs right they've done visual recon uh with the the fungal faces in the windows and now they're doing somatic recon and uh, getting a three-dimensional uh, sense of the other world that they're trying to invade because, you know, our realm is just as weird to them and, and inexplicable as, uh, you know, the fungal ultra dimension would be to us. So they got to figure things out and, uh, you know, what better way to figure out a world than biting a horse? Right. And a whole bunch uh, of other people. Science, science 101. And so finally, uh, the, the third Fortean event happens. As the uh, planning is underway for the, the subway system, in, in January 12th, 1916, above uh, the downtown core of Cincinnati, Ohio, there was a skyquake. Uh, and, uh, and Ken, for the, for the uninitiated, uh, what is a skyquake? A skyquake is a mysterious explosion in the sky that often has no visual component, but a, a, only a sonic one. And if it happened to you now, you'd say, oh, probably someone flew overhead better than the speed of sound. But it sometimes rattles windows or, or has the same effects as an earthquake. But it very clearly comes from up in the sky, not down in helpful Mother Earth. Um, and so finally, this is obviously the final transmission of the ultra-terrestrial fungal threat. Uh, down below uh, the streets of Cincinnati, Ohio. And when the tunnel is, is uh, uh, started, and then even when it's finished, it now has its habitat uh, below. So currently, homeless folks and also uh, the occasional uh, John Tynes-like uh, underground uh, urban explorer goes down into the Cincinnati subway, and presumably uh, some of them encounter the, uh, the fungal uh, threat below. Uh, so... Can other than a fungicide, uh, is that just the solution? We know that there's, uh, is it an actual sort of big giant, uh, fungal monster or is it just sort of the mildew collecting and in the broad, uh, we've already established that they, they work very slowly by our standards. Uh, I think this means that the great fungal attack could come up from the subway. Uh, pretty much whenever you want your player characters to arrive. Right. I think that if you've got um, urban explorers or the homeless going down into that uh, tunnel, at some point they are going to impinge on the fungus and begin to carry it up. And we know that the bug, uh, uh, the kissing bug, uh, was uh, contagious uh, by, by word of mouth as well as by uh, being a cloud of bugs, biting horses and whatnot. We know that the fungal thing would spread because it's a fungal thing. So the notion that it is going to spread onto people who go down into it and then they bring it up. That gives you sort of your slow burn as people show up and maybe the kissing bug re uh, it begins again because now people are carrying it up out of the sewers and that's your, your warning. I want to point out another couple of things because even Charles Fort must bow to the George M. Eberhardt geo bibliography of anomalies. And I want to point out that in 1876, there is a psychic photographer operating in Cincinnati named J.J. Hartman. And I'm thinking maybe J.J. Hartman might have been the guy who opens the gateway 
to the fungal thing. So tracking down his descendants or his old psychic uh, photography laboratory, mysteriously untouched after all these years, might provide you some information as well. There was a uh, famous spirit medium named Laura Pruden in Cincinnati in the 1920s, and perhaps her warnings uh, were what caused the uh, tunnel to be shut down. And if she left psychic disciples around, they might be of some help. Posing as, as mere urban explorers in order to go down and periodically suppress the fungus. But don't be taken in by her rival, Madame Bowerman. She was a fraud. And so I think Madame Bowerman's descendants are probably worshipping the fungus in order to gain uh, its its ultra-terrestrial powers and the ability to see in, uh, into other dimensions. And probably their ectoplasm has kissing bugs in it. Right. Uh, here I went foolishly and made them the good guys, but you don't need good guys. We've got player characters for that. You're totally right. right. Yeah. They must be uh, part of the, the fungal threat. So uh, when everything hits the fan, the uh, uh, windows of uh, Cincinnati will suddenly be... Uh, full of the faces of menacing uh, fungal women uh, watching and uh, keeping uh, track of you. So, uh, player characters, you got to stay away from uh, the eye line of any window in town or they're going to know what you're doing. You come too close to them, they're going to uh, attack you with uh, spectral uh, kissing bugs. Uh, they could uh, cause a skyquake, maybe knock a plane out of the sky. Uh, if they want to uh, tie into the previous segment, that could be an invisible uh, Wyatt Earp, uh, airship. If, if, you know, let's say it's another part of the same scenario. They're both in the Midwest, people. Uh, and so uh, I think we've uh, pretty well indicated that uh, if you're living in Cincinnati, I, I would definitely uh, stock up on, uh, you know, antifungal spray and uh, perhaps beekeepers' outfits to keep those... And, uh, and, and uh, kissing neat. Yes. The, the neat that keeps kissing bugs away. Exactly. Well... I'm glad we finally uh, solved all of these important and, and pressing uh, questions, as we do every week. But I think I'm feeling a bit faint after uh, contemplating all of these uh, uh, fungal menaces and so on. So I think I'd better head on off to my uh, uh, Cincinnati fainting chair, uh, the famous fainting chairs of Cincinnati. Uh, but we'll re recover in time for next week's show, which will no doubt be full of other cornucopic delights. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Avoid the drowsiness and itch of fireball spells alongside such Patreon backers as... Louis Sylvester. Tristan Knight. James Stewart. Dreaming Johnny. And Urs Blumentritt. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Start With Earth. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 